And good morning, or good evening, or good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to that magical time between dusk and dawn, when I guess anything can happen. This is called The Other Side of Midnight. Remember when we used to talk about really weird things at this time of night? Now, of course, 24-7, everything is weird, in case you haven't noticed. So tonight, we're going to be taking a step back in time to perhaps a more normal time. And we're going to probe some things that we've opened up on a couple of shows in the last uh, couple of months, pursue an interesting mystery, take our minds off the um, coronavirus situation, which, look, folks, do not panic. This is manageable, particularly with this concept called, you know, something brand new called the Internet. You may not have heard of it, but the Internet allows you to, among other things, work from home. That's right. If you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, that's our homepage, click on tonight's banner for Jesse James, because we're going to take a trip back in time into the old, old West with some very surprising new information. But if you click on that banner, that will take you to tonight's guest page for... uh, Uh, Dan Duke, and click on that for Saturday, March 14th. That will take you to the guest page. Uh, Click on Fast Link Items up there under the banner, and that will um, take you down to our section of uh, of the website, Radio with Pictures. I only have one item tonight. Slack CFO Alan Shim tells Yahoo Finance that the coronavirus pandemic will cause many corporations to rethink what the modern-day workforce should look like. Now, this is really interesting because we're facing problems with oil. We're facing problems with global climate. We're we're facing problems with global warming. Um, If we all don't commute, if we actually work on these newfangled doodads called computers, if we do it from home, and we're part of a corporate workforce and there are, you know, instructions and help and all that kind of thing. Imagine how much oil we could save. Imagine how much we wouldn't be putting into the atmosphere in terms of H2O and CO2 and all that. In other words, what I'm trying to do, folks, is find the bright lining behind this very, very mysterious and very confusing cloud. Now, We're going to be talking about coronavirus again tomorrow night. We've got some people lined up from around the world who have been on travel to report to you firsthand what's going on when you take airplanes, what's going on if you uh, travel for games and tournaments that are suddenly canceled and you get a chance to see the Grand Canyon with your kids, which, of course, is something you should not miss. Anyway, that's all for tomorrow night. Plus, we're going to have an update on our coronavirus protocols for actually treating this problem by means of Sherry Edwards frequency protocol. And we'll have some very interesting news on that front to report to you. There have been some experiments ongoing this past week and they're proving very, very interesting. So the word is do not panic. Or as my grandmother used to say, if I can remember this correctly, she was, you know, such an interesting Victorian perspective. She said, if you can keep your head when all around you, they are losing theirs, then maybe you don't understand the situation. <laughs> anyway, um, my guest tonight is Dan Duke, and we're going to be doing something very different for the other side of midnight. So let's get on with it. Dan Duke is the great, great grandson of Jesse James. Yes, that Jesse James. And we're going to have fun exploring a bit of this tonight. He grew up surrounded by stories of lost outlaw treasures, and for more than two decades, Dan has researched the mysteries involving his family, Freemasonry, the Knights Templar. Oh, and did I mention that he lives in Texas? Dan grew up in the hill country of Central Texas, surrounded by a wealth of stories of lost Spanish and outlaw treasure. After high school, Dan earned a bachelor's degree in environmental science and has worked in jobs ranging from construction 
to environmental work for an engineering firm out of Houston, Texas. Later, he worked for Dell Inc. closer to his hometown of Liberty Hill, Texas. Dan's childhood in the Texas countryside, along with his education and professional background, has intertwined well with his passions, which have guided him for over two decades in researching the mysteries involving his family. Chief among these mysteries are those which surround his great-great-grandfather, the noted or infamous, or, um, you know, we'll leave it there, Old West outlaw Jesse Woodson James, as well as the legend and mysteries of hidden treasures, which Jesse and those associated with him are said to have taken from some place and then buried. In addition to writing, Dan's hobbies include hiking, genealogy, history, bookkeeping, beekeeping, treasure hunting, researching symbols, codes, healthy cooking, and by all means, last but not least, good coffee. Dan, welcome to the other side of midnight. You may need some before the morning is over. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, obviously, I've got to dive right into this. How the hell did you first find out you're the great-great-grandson of Jesse James? Well, that, that, that story had been passed down through the family for generations. Uh, I've, I've heard it ever since I can remember as a child. And, the, you know, every time we had a family get-together at Christmas or any of the other holidays, we would, uh, you know, I'd hear the story. And being a kid, you know, you would hear it and think, oh, that's neat and run off, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but later, I, I, you know, and my mother went through the same thing. And she's the one who started the research, the serious research into finding out whether the, the family lore was true or if it was just a tall tale. And because, you know, you hear the story and then you go to school and you learn history and you hear that or you watch, you know, a movie and you find out that history says he was he was killed and shot in the back of the head by one of his fellow gang members in 1882. So, you know, you're at first my mom thought, well, how can that be true? She wanted to know which story was true and which was false. And after she passed away, my sister Teresa and I took up her work and, and just continued the research. Um, we've, it's, it's a, it's a long story, but after, after trying to, uh, verify whether, you know, which story was true and which was false, we're, we're all a hundred percent sure that our family lore was actually true. Well, one of the advantages of long form radio is we got about three hours, so start at the beginning. How did you nail down that, in fact, you are the great-great-grandson of the infamous Jesse James? Okay. It started – we uh, we had an aunt, well, my mother's aunt, my great-aunt, and um, I was in college. I was commuting. My mom took me to school one day and uh, dropped me off, and she went to go visit our aunt. And, you know, they visited often, but on this visit – my aunt, you know, mom, my mother had raised us. We were, we had gone through high school. She didn't have as much on her hands. She had a lot more time on her hands, you know, after we got out of high school, m- me and my, my siblings. And, um, she, she was looking for something to do. And my, her aunt asked her, um, if she was interested in the, the old story about Jesse. And she said, yes. And Judy, my, my great aunt said, uh, well, I've got something for you. And she came out. She brought her an envelope with a letter and a treasure map in it, and the treasure map was from our my great great grandfather, my mother's great grandfather, and uh, who we strongly believe was Jesse James. Mm-hmm. And the, so the treasure the treasure map it had codes. Um, it was just it was amazing looking at it, and uh, you know real it was real mysterious with the codes. I'd never seen I'd never had any exposure to coded writing and ciphers but uh, and that just made it all the more intriguing so let, hang got, on hang on down let me get this straight okay. so from the time you were born it was in the family that you were related to jesse james right that's right that he was your great great grandfather exactly okay was this the first time that your great aunt had brought out some kind of documentation to show to your mom that was the first time she had uh there were also family photos we had but when 
when that the treasure map came out, it just made it that much more interesting. You know, why would a simple farmer have have large treasures buried around? I mean, farmers aren't known to make that much money, especially off a 160-acre farm. Uh, and pe- people just, you know, there were half the family believed it. The other half, most of them believed it, but they denied it. They didn't want – and back in those days, a lot of the older generation kept that quiet. Uh, knowing you had an outlaw in the family, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was something you kept quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, like some of our, I had, I'd had another uncle in a different part of the family who'd gone to prison in the 1950s, I believe, late fifties, early sixties. And that was just something you never brought up. And, uh, you know, even, even when I was a teenager and I was talking to that uncle, I, I knew not to talk about it. So, mm. um, it was even, that kind of mindset was even more concrete or set in stone with the older generations than it was with my generation. So why so, did uh, your great aunt wait so long to present think, to your mother or was it something like a special occasion or does it something that just came into her hands or, I mean, how did that, how did the timing work? She had it for a while and she, I think she wanted her son. She wanted to pass it on to her son, but her son had no interest in any of that. And I, I believe that the whole reason she handed it to my mother was because mom showed an interest in it and she just pushed that along with, with the treasure map. Um, she had, she had several kids. The aunt had several children and two weren't able to follow along with that. And the other one wasn't interested. So, I believe that's a that's the only reason I can come up with as to why she handed it to my mom. Hmm. And then from there we uh, we got some of the other family photos, photos we had, photos, copies of photos that our other relatives had had that had been passed down through the family, and we noticed that his mother was missing her arm, the same arm that was missing, and uh, you know Jesse James's mother was missing. And we noticed the resemblance and thought, God, could this really be true? Hmm. So my, my mother took it to the uh, Texas Department of Public Safety. It's our state police uh, down at their headquarters in Austin, their forensics department. No, wait, wait. What, they, what, what, what year was this? This was in 98, I believe, 97 or 98 when she did that. Okay. Actually, it might have been 95. Sorry about that. She wrote her first article in Texas Monthly, I think, in 97. So the photo was before that. It was 95 or 96. Um, she took the she took the photos, or several of our family photos, to the Texas Department of Public Safety, their forensic department, and they verified using their uh, photographic analysis and several computers they had at the time, too. They verified that our photographs matched the known photographs of Jesse and several of his family members, you know, the historic historically accepted photos. Mm-hmm. So, so we had that mom was really excited. The whole family was excited. We went further. She took it to the Austin police department, photographic forensics analysis lab. And they verified, they, they verified the same thing. So she went to one other who was at the time called uh, Visionics. They were world's leaders in facial recognition technology, and they were later purchased by another company called Identix. But they, they provided the facial recognition for airports and military use and other areas. But they uh, – Boy, your mom was really thorough. Yeah, she wanted to make sure <laughs> – well, see, when, when she first found this out, she was excited. She thought, I'm going to call – she wanted to call the James Farman Museum in Missouri and tell them of her findings. Right. Cause, you know, she thought they're going to be so excited that he didn't die like history said he did. And that that didn't happen. She They weren't excited at all. They didn't want to hear anything about it. Well, so, of course uh, not. It, that, would, it would destroy the myth. Yeah, and we, <laughs> we, we all felt really naive over thinking they would be happy to hear this. They weren't happy at all. Hmm. So um, they they just, you know. Blew it off, and mom was disappointed. Was this Dan? Hang on. Was this the first time you encountered the idea that officials and authorities and institutions are not interested in the truth? 
Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, everything – I grew up in small town Texas, and, you know, I just – I didn't – I'd never had exposure to that sort of thing before. Um, it was it – So was you high. grew up where a man's word is bonds, a handshake is as good as a contract, people tell you the truth, they look you in the – that kind of thing. That's right. And then, you know, it was eye-opening, to say the least, but uh, it, it, it just – pushed us to dig dig deeper and go as deep as we could and find everything we could find after my mother wrote her first book the detractors wait 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 wait, wait. your mother wrote a book yeah her first she wrote three books the first one was jesse james lived and died in texas and the second was the truth about jesse james her third one was jesse james the smoking gun she she wrote that after we found a really good photograph. I mean, extremely, it was an amazing photograph showing the whole James family together at my great, great grandfather's farm in Blevins, Texas. The house is the same. Uh, my great, great grandfather's in there. The whole family's in it. Not only that, some of his known neighbors from Blevins, Texas are in the photo. So it, it, it shows the whole James family and that's a historically accepted photo. So it shows the James family at you know during Frank when Frank was married to Annie Annie Ralston, uh, his the, the lady he married Frank James. Well, it was at it was a yeah. We we need to kind of fill in the characters because I'm sure a lot of people listening, certainly overseas, have no idea who Jesse James is and why we're making yeah. a big deal of it. Okay, <laughs> yeah, he was he was known as by some as America's Robin Hood. He was uh, uh, some, you know, half the country. The country was divided over, you know, over that as well. They, a lot of people saw him as a hero, you know, fighting for the common man. And some people had written things in in books, such as uh, for, you know, he was the guy who fought back against the man who had his boot on your neck, and uh, you know, things like that. That's that's the attitude a lot of people had. He was fighting the railroads, fighting the bankers. You know, just this and that. And then other people, the other half of the country, viewed him as a cold-hearted, bloodthirsty killer. And uh, a lot of the killings they attributed to him, there's no proof he ever did that. But they, you know, that it gets in a newspaper and that takes off, and that's you know, it it seems to come, become a part of history, whether you know, without any really good source to to verify that story. But he, I'm, he was no angel. I'm not here to defend him. He, he killed people. He robbed, and uh, that was that. You know, I mean, he was kind of, in my opinion, he was forced into it in a way, just because he was 14 years old. He was during this is right at the beginning of the Civil War. He was 14 years old. He was plowing in his family farm. He was too young to fight, so he stayed at home and he was farming, plowing. Some Union-backed guerrillas rode onto their farm and brutally beat him. They strapped him to the plow and beat him bad, whipped him, beat him. Uh, looked, I believe they broke his nose, judging from photos when he was young. And uh, then they rode onto the family farm. They pushed his mother around, who was pregnant at the time. Some accounts claim that they stripped her stripped her down, tied her to a tree, and beat her with a horse whip. I'm not sure how true that is. That's just one account. The other, that is a fact, they they hung his stepfather until he was, he wasn't dead, but he was severely brain damaged from that point. It got worse as he aged, but he was, it left him with permanent brain damage. Um, So, you know, being a 14-year-old kid, especially in those days, uh, it's easy to see why Jesse wanted revenge. He he couldn't join the regular Confederacy. He didn't care so much about the side he joined. He knew what side attacked him, and he wanted to make them pay. So he joined the side that was fighting them, which happened to be Confederate guerrillas. Hmm. He found a group of he found a group of guerrillas who would take him in at that young age, and he was one of the best guerrillas they had, and that that's established fact. Um, he he had. He had killed a lot of men during the war, and he was very good at it, as were most of the other guerrillas. And um, after the war, most of the uh, – well, the Confederate forces were granted amnesty. The guerrillas weren't. So they were – when they were found, they were either shot on sight or arrested, taken to a, 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 taken to a fort and hung. 
So, you know, it was either run, fight, or die. You know, the way they, they didn't have much of a choice. They weren't granted amnesty, and they were being hunted down. Kind of like that old movie, The Outlaw Josie Wells, if you've seen mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And it, it was much along those those same lines. Um, and he, you know... He so, wait, wait. He, he, he joined this, these outlaw, these guerrilla bands when he was 14? Exactly. Wow. I mean, that was like it's child fighter you know like you hear you hear reports of that in third world countries around the world child soldiers and I, i'm sure back in those days it, i don't think it was all that uncommon i mean i've i've read of one child who fought for the north and he was barely over 10 years old he didn't really he, he did kill one man that's the uh northern child i was talking about mm-hmm. but uh it, i don't think it was that uncommon but it, it Especially with gorillas, they were they were in, they were desperate, and I believe they were taking anybody who's who showed the ability that Jesse had to fight and and fight well. Well, this was the era where the British were impressing seamen, and I mean, you know, armed forces that needed cannon fodder, they just took them. Yeah, and I mean, he wanted to fight. He had the will. They showed him how, taught him. And he'd already had training, you know, being on the frontier in those days. He he had an uncle who was known as Wild Bill. It wasn't the same Wild mm. Bill we hear of in the history books. It was a, people just called him Wild Bill. His, they said his beard was so long he tucked it in when he went into town, like a shirt. <laughs> so, and you know, the guy that that guy was legendary in his own right, just from you know stories about him. But he had been taught how to how to fight, how to throw knives, how to shoot a gun. And then when, you know, when that happened to him when he was 14, he'd, he already had some abilities and the gorillas just honed that. Hmm. And uh, it went from there. After the Civil War, they were treating, so. You know, they so were did, did your mom get into doing heavy research because she felt this deserved a book? Yeah. Well, after she she started doing the heavy research and more and more just kept coming in after she wrote the article for or the, an article was written for her and published in a texas monthly magazine that brought in even more information people started calling from places we would have never looked and it you know that provided a lot of information and then it got to be so much people would ask her to tell the story and you know she it, it took it would require several books to tell the story so she started – she wrote her first book, and then it just kept me – after the first book, more information. We continued research. More people contacted us with bits and pieces and photos and just different pieces of information, and it led to two more books. And this is all pre, 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 pre-internet. Yeah, it was – for us, yes. <laughs> the first book, yes, uh, after – I guess around early 2000, I think it was around 2000, 2001 when we got the first computer for, you know, in our family. And we just, we, you know, I was using that night and day looking, scanning <laughs> census records, and any records I could find. It came in very so. Helpful. So when you were, when you were nailing this down and her research was making it pretty clear that, you know, Jesse James was a member of your family, how did that make you feel? I was proud, and and I wasn't ashamed of it. Um, after reading his whole, you know, his story, the history about him, I, I thought, well, you know, and and I always long ago I read a, a quote from Louis L'Amour, the Western author, and he had said, and I can't quote this right off the top of my head, forgive me, but I'll probably mangle it. But it was, uh, don't judge a person by the canvas of the time in which they lived. Is basically what the quote said, and I always liked that because that's true. Um, there's, you know, you you really can't judge a person other than by the standards of the time they lived in, and it's also hard to judge him, especially since the, the country was divided so bad. Um, you know, half the country rooted him on, and the other half, you know, thought of him as a as a horrible murderer. Today, he'd be labeled a terrorist. I'm sure. Mm, I'm sure. But, uh, but uh, so you your know, mom, your mom is your mom is obviously haunting libraries because that's back in the days before internet when you went to libraries. She checks out the photos. She decided to write a book. What for herself? For the family? For history? For for why? 
she wanted to write it in her words. She wanted to write it because she thought the world deserved to know the truth. And she wanted a pub. She wanted to publish it. She found a publisher in Austin and got her book published. And uh, it just and that that satisfied her for a short time until the detractors started in. Oh, and you know, yes. the detractors were a group from uh, they. Most of our detractors, actually all of them, were tied in with the James Farman Museum in one way or another. They were loosely tied to it, not officially, but they they had strong ties. Um, one of them was Judge Ross, who claims to be a descendant, Judge James Ross. And actually, at the time, he wasn't a judge because he'd been disbarred. But they, he had claimed he, he liked to call himself judge. Um, he, he, was, he was a detractor, but he didn't get as nasty as all the others had. Um, some of his, friend, his close friend, Eric James, who calls himself Eric James, um, he, he was one of the worst. And it just kind of escalated from there after her second book. So was this people that were basically jealous of her because she was a relative or was it a power thingy or I mean what was why were they detracting her research? That's a good question and I think they I think the only person who could really answer that is them themselves but I don't know if you get to get a an honest answer from them. Um they sent death threats to my mother. Oh my god. Uh, it, it got to where they. The so was this because she was disturbing a legend? I think it was out of fear. They, you know, when when somebody attacks that viciously and starts threatening to kill you, if you know, wow. that that to me spells fear. It just reeks of fear. I think they were worried it would cost them money. Um, I, I don't know if it was their ego. I don't know if it was money or a mix of those. Uh, I'm not sure. I can't answer the question for them, but. Um, they they sent death threats. The FBI got involved and fortunately took care of it. So um, and the guy who was sending the threats, they got another guy to send the threats. He admitted to it and he named everybody who was involved. <laughs> what a conspiracy! <laughs> yeah, it was it was crazy. So but this I'm, was your first. How old are you at this time? Oh, I'm 52 now, and that was about 20 years ago. I was in my 30s. Okay. But you said you were very naive. You said you and the whole family were naive because you thought the world would welcome new history, and you found out that they don't? Yeah, um, <laughs> that's exactly right. I found out they didn't. Hmm. Welcome, well, welcome to the whole truth-telling thing. And I also think the in that case with Jesse and his history, everybody, the only people – Anyone knew to go to was, were the you know supposed experts in Missouri, the James Farman Museum and the people who surrounded that, and they they kept their little group, you know it was a close knit little group and they all wrote books and and you know made sure they complemented one another and all that, and I think they had a nice little racket going and that's how they were making money and keeping their I, I don't know I don't know if it was boosting their egos or not, but uh, when somebody came along and it actually threatened their story that it i think it struck deep fear we struck some kind of nerve because they seemed very fearful okay hold it there we're at the bottom of the hour we're taking a reprise back to the time of the old west remember these saturday morning serials westerns as far as the eye could see What's the real story behind the James Gang? What does Dan know that he found out as he was working on his books? We're going to get into all of that this morning with my guest of this morning, who is Dan Duke. And we're going to be talking about uh, all kinds of strange things having to do with the untold story of the American West. Don't go away. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And we shall return. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, March 14th, 2020. We're taking a trip back through time to the old American West, to a legend, a legend of the West, a legend of Jesse James. My guest this morning is a relative great-great-grandson 
Daniel Duke, who's in the midst of telling us the story of how his great aunt handed some very interesting information to his mom. His mom looked at it, did due diligence, and decided to write a book. So, on that note, Dan, uh, pick up the story, please. Okay, I'm trying to remember where I left off. Uh, I believe we were talking about the death threats. The yep, FBI yep, took care yep. of it. Um, yeah, we were shocked. We were extremely shocked that that, that had happened and, and that it had escalated that far. I mean, usually you'd laugh about it until it happens. You know, I, I would have laughed about something like that until it actually happened. And the fact that they were sending death threats to my mother – um, just made it that much worse. Um, and it just, it, to me, when you look, when I look back on it, it reeks of fear on their part. Uh, it, it, for somebody to go to those links and take that kind of risk, they had to have been afraid. It had to have been threatening something. I don't know if it was their egos, money they were making. I know the James Farman Museum pulls in a lot of money every year. Uh, and it's just, I mean, 20, 15 to 20 years ago, I think they were pulling in four to seven million a year in tur- from tourists. Oh my so God! I'm, you know, if, if they felt that it threatened that, and mom, my mother, <laughs> she wasn't quite sure how why they were so afraid because you know it doesn't just because he faked his death and he didn't die. He at that you know in that location he wasn't buried there. He. Uh, he was born there, and he grew up there. That's where all this, everything happened. All the major parts of his life up until the 1880s happened at that, you know, on that farm. So uh, and around it. So uh, I guess I, I guess they felt she was threatening their history, and if if that was proven to be wrong, who would believe them on anything else? So that, that's the only thing I can think of. I'm not sure. That's just my theory. So, so you never got to the bottom of why there was this incredible opposition to your mom just doing a book on on the family. No, I'm I never got. And after somebody sends a death threat to your mother, I mean that's the last person I care to ever speak to. Good. So, uh, you know, it's just <laughs> much less meet them. But um, at the same time, yeah, it, it would. It, it's not some. It's not a burning question in my mind. I've got more important things to, you know, like the research. To me, is much more important than wondering why someone would send a death threat to a woman. So uh, when when this is all going on, she wrote three books that must have taken what two or three years. It took her quite a quite a while. Yeah, it took her several years for each book. Ah, well, she was very thorough. <laughs> she was. She was, and when she when she got, you know, when she found evidence, she went to she went to amazing lengths. She went to she went as far as she could possibly go in trying to verify that with the use of known experts and not just like the James Farman Museum. They would use a guy who was a water painter. You know, he 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 painted, which is fine. A lot of people paint. And that's a nice hobby. But at the same time. I mean, you don't use somebody like that. I mean, his only qualifications for for verifying photographs was that he was a painter and an artist. And I, you know, anybody could do that. Uh, we wanted, we wanted. Wait, wait, wait. You mean, you mean when when she took the photos that her your great aunt had given her, that was their expert. Yeah, she she uh, any photos that they used, they would you know claim were were verified and they'd have you and my mother had sent a couple of copies to their expert at the time. His name was George Warfail and she, and he lived in Florida. He's passed on now, but uh, she sent him photos and he would use some antiquated method that he read about somewhere to verify the photos. And it just didn't add up. Nothing he said added up. So mom wanted to go to, you know, the, the most qualified experts she could find with you know the Texas State Police, the DPS, forensics experts, mm. and the Austin, the Austin Police Department and Visionics in New Jersey, and uh, if you know they they were world at the time world leaders in facial recognition technology. So you know you couldn't get much better than that, in my opinion. So she wrote three books. In the meantime, you're living your life. When did the bug bite you? I was at work in Houston. Uh, 
I was working for an engineering company in their environmental department and she called me, um, and told me about it. I was excited. I, you know, I grew up hearing the story and I was excited about what she had to say, but I didn't really get into it. I ended up getting, <laughs> I got a divorce and moved back to, to my hometown. And mm. that's, I had a lot more time to get into it then. So that's when I got, I really got into it. I uh, had different jobs working at Dell and other companies, corporations, but I, on all my spare time, I was researching. I, I was hooked on it after all the findings my mother had made, I got hooked on it and started searching every census record and all sorts of other records I could find. Hmm. Well, when you find that somebody of that notoriety is a member of your own family, I can, I can imagine why it would kind of, you know, spur on, uh, how did you respond though to the attacks? I mean, did you think that you might be, you know, sharing in those attacks if you started working on supporting her research? Yeah. It, the, the attacks, had the opposite effect, I guess, the opposite effect of what they expected. It didn't scare us off. It, it just drove us on that much more. Um, and, you know, um, living in the country in Texas, it's not <laughs> – you grow up knowing how to hunt and shoot your gun. You know, everybody's got guns, and not everybody, but a lot of people in Texas have guns for arm. And in Texas, you can protect yourself legally. So we didn't really worry about it. I worried – I worried about my mother, but as long as we were at the house, it didn't, we were never worried. So, hmm. but, uh, what, what also drove me on further was the, the treasure maps. It wasn't just the one that my great aunt Judy had handed to mom years before that. Um, um, an old elderly gentleman named George Roaming had, uh, he, he grew up in Blevins when he was a boy. He knew, he knew Jesse, uh, when Jesse was in his 90s, late 80s, early 90s, or up until 97 when he died, uh, George Roaming knew him, and he had written a treasure map. He, uh, he said Jesse, we call him Grandpa, Jesse had uh, hired him, swore, swore him to secrecy, and hired him to help him bury some gold, uh, hmm. which I found out later was just right around 20 miles away from Jesse's farm. So, uh, <laughs> and this one, he, he, he drew a map to it. And George was old when he drew this map. He was in his 80s. Right. He passed away in El Paso. But uh, he drew the map. We still have the map. He drew it for us and showed us exactly where it was. And, you know, said, you know, he, he just wanted, he gave it to mom because she, he felt she deserved it. She'd earned it. And she was part of the family. And, he thought it was rightfully, you know, the fat belongs to the family. Right. And that, that was in his words. So we went out to look for it and it's under a lake on Fort hood, uh, military base. So we turned around. Like, oh, oh Mike, you mean in the, in the intervening years? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the, the landscape they, had shifted a bit and somebody built a fort near it. Well, they built the lake in 1954 uh. and, um, oh, I can't remember the date. I don't know the date off the top of my head. Fort Hood came into existence before they built the lake, I believe. But they, they uh, that encompassed their property encompassed that area. So you know, I wasn't even going to uh, going to attempt that. I was going to say that would be. There were years ago. There were you know a great television show called um, um, Seventy Seven Sunset Strip. Remember that. Uh -huh. I've heard of it. And there was one plot line one night where the bank robber gets out of jail, right? And he's going to go back and reclaim his loot. Uh-huh. And somebody's built a house <laughs> right on top of it. It seems it's odd. When it comes to treasures, strange things happen. Strange things. So uh, when you started doing this, you were doing a bunch of other stuff. I mean, obviously – at some point, you figured out that there was more to the James gang than just robbing trains and banks, right? Yeah. I, uh, you know, getting into the treasure part of it, the coded messages he had, he left behind, you know, a diary that was, he had several diaries or day books. They weren't really diaries. He, he didn't write down his feelings and thoughts. He just wrote the facts. Uh, it's more like a, a journal mm -hmm. um, or a log book. Exactly. And he, he let he had several of those. We have we have one 
and it was the, some of the other family members have some. I know one of the relatives who was ashamed of it burned over 200 letters. Oh my and, god! Yeah, it, oh that my really god! Us. I mean, even if you're ashamed of it, it's history. It's history. You don't, you don't yeah. burn and destroy history. But uh, she, for whatever reason, she she burned two hundred over 200 letters. Oh my uh, god! But there was <laughs> the funny thing is she was she was. Her husband was a Baptist preacher. She was a small-town teacher, and this is in small-town Texas, yet they owned oil wells, had oil royalties, and had enough cash to buy homes and properties for all of their children, and they lived very well, which just seems strange on a teacher's salary and the salary and whatever a a small-town Baptist preacher would make. And we'd always wondered if they didn't find some of the letters. Oh, my. In the letters. Yeah. So, oh and, my and they, gosh! They made some very large donations to uh, Baylor University. That so, sounds uh, very likely. Yeah, it was very maybe maybe burning the letters was to cover the trail. That's what I've wondered. I can't prove it, but it, it just makes you wonder. Huh. Uh, so, Dan, you yeah, have I a very it. interesting family. That's <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> true. Um, they, well, you know, getting into the treasure part of it and the ciphers he left in his journal. And, well, before, and the, before we do treasure. all that, before we do okay. all that, let's 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 kind of reconstruct it, you know, hands on. Okay. The first time you really get into this, is it because of the treasure part, the map? I got into it. Well, Mom got into it. She wanted to know the truth. Um, she, and you know, when we were handed the map, we we're, it was. The map, the first map we were handed was a copy of Jesse's original map. The guy who made the copy was Jesse's son, Byron Courtney, um, who happened to be the uh, ma- the lady who burned the letters. She yeah. was his daughter, Byron's daughter. Oh. So Jesse was her grandfather. So uh, Byron, one of it was one of his two sons. Byron had drawn the he copied the map, and that's what we got handed down through the family. Um, that we we just assumed, you know, if Byron had been looking for it, he had a map. It's it may, you know, it's highly likely he could have found it. Um, and we, you know, I it was neat. It was really, you know, a neat thing to have a treasure map. But at the same time, so many people had looked for it. It just seemed it. And after all the digging, I mean, when they buried him, when Jesse died in 1943 at the age of 97, half his children, including Byron. Were at his farm digging up the yard. <laughs> yeah. they, they didn't go to the funeral. Oh they, my God! I can. It's, 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 like, it's like a scene out of a movie. I can see it. Yeah. I can just crazy. see it. You know, yes. I mean, these days when somebody dies, there's usually giant family arguments and fights, and it ends up in court. Back then, with with Jesse, instead of going to court, they at well, they eventually went to court, but that was later. They. Um, they, instead of going to their own dad's funeral, they spent the time digging up the front yard. Oh my God! <laughs> it was, it, it was, yeah. It's the that that's it's a shame that happened. He treated them well. He bought them all homes and farms, and some of them lost their farms and ended up moving back in with uh, Jesse, and he let them live there. But uh, uh, for whatever reason, they they spent their time looking for the gold instead of going to his funeral. Hmm. Makes the movie even more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Good grief. Okay, so many decades later you get embroiled in this and what what was your first what was the first thing you did? When I went well with the Jesse James research mm-hmm. or the treasure of it. Okay, with the Jesse research I helped my mom. We were we were constantly, you know, she'd already gone to the the uh, different forensic photographic experts and we just kept looking for more information i took her down to the uh, state archives in austin texas many times and uh, there's a lot of stories involved with that as well people you know we were warned by two men um, and they never told us who they were they just warned us not to mention certain names and we haven't and i don't plan on it the names they they warned us about don't really tie into the story anyway it are they, they're not important in proving the story. Um, so, and 
that that there's a lot of strange, mysterious things like that that have happened over the years. After a while, you get used to it, and I, it's 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 hard to explain to most people because they look at you like, okay, <laughs> you know, they don't. Well, know what wait, you're wait, 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 wait. You you go to the basically the history section of the state government of of Texas, right? That's right. And they tell you not to mention certain names. Yeah, two men. We kept we saw them several times and they were always, you know, they 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 were always watching or walking by and you know just saying hi or something and then one day they finally sat down and we didn't know who they were, but they warned us not to mention certain names who were tied in with Jesse James. Well, and uh, this, this opens they, up a huge can of worms. It's like what was James into if he wasn't just your quote average iconic you know western bank robber yeah it, it made us wonder <laughs> i mean this sounds this sounds like men in black and the whole ufo thing or yeah. deep yeah. state intel guys i mean i i don't know who they were um i don't know if they were treasure hunters i know there are a lot of treasure hunters who uh remind me of modern day pirates and they will play crazy games trying to get you know, get information. So it could have been treasure hunters. I don't know, hmm. uh, but the, they they followed us, they watched us, and then they finally introduced themselves and just gave us that warning. And it was after they told us a little about who they were. They, um, you know, we didn't really see much of them after that. They just wanted to give us that warning, according to them. Hmm. Not to mention certain people. In what, in the book she was writing or the book you were it's, thinking of? or Yeah. Uh, that, well, people that – my mother had mentioned several people that, that had contact with Jesse, and there were people tied in with them that they didn't want us know, uh, talking about. So hmm. it, was, it was interesting, yeah. It, it, and I, to this day, when I think too deeply about that, it, make, it drives me crazy not knowing. Uh, there's a lot of questions I have involving that side of the story that I would really love to know. And it, this is the kind of research that it goes from Jesse and it just branches out like a spider's web of amazing information in a lot of cases that I may, I'll probably never know the answer to all of it. Hmm. And it just, I, I, it, it's addictive and frustrating <laughs> at the same time. Well, if you like mysteries, if you're into Sherlock Holmes, if you, you know, all right, so you're working on with your mom on on a member of the family, your great grandfather, um, on the Jesse part. When did you start thinking that there were other things going on, like the Templar Association or Masons or treasure that wasn't just treasure, that kind of thing? Okay, well, Jesse, um, you know, if you read a lot of the, I originally thought Jesse was a member of the Knights of the Golden Circle. Okay. And for those who don't know who they are – I was going to say you better describe who they are. Okay. Uh, they were a pro-Confederate – a secretive pro-Confederate group. They were kind of like the Secret Service in a way for the South. Um, in a loose way, they were a secret society. They have, so Their main goal during the Civil War – was to burn, you know, burn bridges, uh, halt the movements, and hurt the Northern Army in, in any way they could to, uh, you know, try to win for the their side, the Confederacy. So, and they were they were good at what they did. They caused a lot of trouble, and uh, they're extremely secretive. After the Civil War was over, they supposedly, allegedly, changed their goal. And their new mission was to gain as much wealth as they could in any way they could to help fund a second civil war. Mm. And I, I always look at that as like Texas football. Uh, football's huge in Texas, and if you lose a game, you all, you know, any, any, <laughs> anybody. If you if you're competing against somebody and you lose, you want a second chance. You know, everybody wants a rematch. Friday so night I, lights. Yeah, and that's exactly that. I always viewed it like that. But uh, they they supposedly had a lot of power, powerful people, and you know they lump Jesse in. A lot of people try to lump Jesse James as being a part of that, and it wouldn't shock me if he was. But there's no proof that he was. They also try to lump in uh, Albert Pike, and it wouldn't shock me if he was either. But at the same time, there's no proof. So uh, you know, if you can't prove something, there's 
you have to look around that. Well, I do know, you know, everybody knows Albert Pike was a Freemason. And Jesse, after he changed his name, and he may have been a Freemason before that, but I don't, I don't know if there's no proof showing whether he was or not. But I do know under his alias of James Lafayette Courtney here in Texas, he was a Freemason. And I know George Roaming, the elder man, the elderly gentleman that I had mentioned earlier, he uh, he also was a Freemason, and he he knew about the treasures. Jesse knew, you know, Jesse had hired him to to bury some treasure with him. Jesse was old; he needed a young guy to to you know unload the gold, load it and unload it. Um, so he he wrote the map, showed my mother and I where that treasure was. I know there were other treasures found. During our research, we met Wagner Carr. Uh, he was a former Texas. He was a farm, former attorney general for the state of Texas, and he was very interested in Jesse James and the treasures. And uh, he had his driver show my mother and I where several treasures had been recovered, very large treasures. And uh, I knew there was a template. You know, if you do any research on the Knights of the Golden Circle, and I, I hope I'm not jumping around too much here. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. If you do research on the Knights of the Golden Circle, a lot of the treasure stories, you'll usually come across a, what they call the KGC template. And it's, um, I meant, I show it in my book. Um, it's, it's like, it's a square in a circle. It's two concentric circles, one inside another. There's a square on the outside and it's divided into sections, um, 16 sections with eight main lines, but then they have uh, eight additional dotted lines and it looks kind of strange and uh, I thought okay well maybe if this is a treasure template then I should be able to line it up with these treasures that I've I, I personally know of um, so I, I worked with it and after Wagner Carr and George Roman had, had showed us where certain treasures were it it lined up perfectly with Jesse's farm and where a treasure used to be on his farm and it lined up perfectly with all the treasures they had shown us. And there was a scale to it. You know, if, if you have a template, but you don't have a scale, it's almost impossible to find something. Mm -hmm. But if once, once you have at least three reference points, it makes it a lot easier. So I, I had, I found the reference points, the place, places where treasures had been and one still is. And, but yet it's unobtainable because it's on a military base. So, uh, Anyway, I, I found this, this is the one at the bottom of that lake. Yeah, and I had I had lined up all the tre you know the template it matched exactly with the treasure points, and I get I, I question everything. I always want to know why something is the way it is. Why is the you know wh why is it this distance? So and tying that in with you know I knew he was a Freemason. That's an esoteric area. Um, I thought, okay, I'll try to – I wanted to know who the treasures originally came from because there are so many treasures buried that have been recovered and attributed to Jesse, yet I know there's no way he could have robbed that much gold in his lifetime. Okay, let me, let me stop here because I want to okay. get, a, get a, a big picture. We know that the Knights of the Golden Circle, which were in, in support of the Confederacy, robbed trains, robbed gold, and buried it as part of – continuing the fight why did jesse james bury treasure and what was the treasure was it loot from the from the train jobs the bank jobs or was it special artifacts unusual things that's a good question very good question um i think there's a little bit of both i don't know if jesse I believe the treasures tie into sacred treasures that tie back to the Knights of Templar. Um, I do. I Jesse, I know robbed gold, and he may have robbed documents as well. Um, I'm not sure about that, but the uh, I know the gold, the gold that he robbed is he added to those treasure sites. And I have a feeling over throughout history, a lot of different people like uh, well, different pirates who. Like Jean Lafitte, for example, uh, Jesse's journal mentions Jean Lafitte's nephew, uh, G. Fontenot, who was the nephew of Jean Lafitte, the famous pirate. The funny thing is, Jean uh, G. Fontenot, Gervais Fontenot was his name, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, 
he, he was in Louisiana. He was a U.S. Marshal who had retired, but he was also uh, tied in with Jesse. And I thought that was a very – that's an interesting story in itself. But then I found – I thought, okay, who was G. Fontenot? Who was this guy? I found out his name was Gervais Fontenot. And then when I did his, his genealogy, I found out his family had already been doing his genealogy. He was a great-nephew of Jean Lafitte. Oh, actually, a, a nephew, not a great nephew, a nephew. So he was Jean Lafitte's nephew, and that just that I thought, oh my God! I mean, how, you, you you've got Jesse James, and then he's got he he's he knows personally knows Jean Lafitte's nephew. I mean, how does this kind of stuff tie in together? And then you think of all the treasures; both of them have treasure legends attributed to them, and I believe they're all connected. Um, it just gets. I think throughout the years. Different people throughout the centuries have gotten treasures in different ways and buried them on this template. And it's a template that covers America, the Americas, not just the United States, but also parts of Mexico and Canada and maybe more. I don't know how much further it would go. But uh, I do, you know, after reading about the history of the, the Jewish um, like Jewish pirates, like Jean Lafitte, his, his grandmother was a Jewish in his words, a Jewess who had been persecuted in the uh, oh, I'm now I'm forgetting the name of it. Well, he'd been pers- she had been persecuted in Spain during the Inquisition. Oh, okay. Uh, so, and you know, he hated the Spanish for that reason. And I don't think he was a big fan of the Catholic Church as well. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and that that gave him more than enough reason to rob Spanish ships that were stealing. You know, they were taking gold from. The Ameri- from Mexico and Central America, the Americas, and taking it back to Spain, and a large portion of that went to the, probably the Vatican. Um, and you know, so you can see why Jean Lafitte and other Jewish pirates would have robbed that. Where did they take the gold they robbed? A lot of you know, a lot of people like to claim they they spent it. They just blew their money. And, and how can you blow that much money and not you know not raise a lot of eyebrows? So. One, uh, one does wonder. They, yeah, I believe they buried a lot of that on in different in different areas that that were all within the same grid system. And the uh, KGC template isn't actually a KGC template. It's a template that ties back through the Freemasons to the Knights Templar. Okay, hold it there. Okay. My my guest this morning is Dan Duke, talking about his great grandfather. Jesse James. We're kind of reliving a different story of the old, old West. And tonight we're going to play some familiar music. You're on the other side of midnight. We're talking about Jesse James. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.
Thank you.